If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite uh, you to turn with me to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. So this morning we're beginning our new series. Now, we've been doing this, we did this last summer, we're doing this this summer, where we're taking a moment, taking a break from our time in the particular series that we are in last uh, year. Uh, I believe we're also in Luke. Yeah, I believe we just started it. This year, we're taking a pause in Luke uh, to be able to focus on some psalms, to realize the richness of the psalms, the historical context of the psalms. Last year, we saw Christ in the psalms, Messiah in the psalms, the wonderful glory that was found in the psalms regarding Jesus, proclaiming his coming, very detailed, very detailed, that there is absolutely no way that it could be replicated in the way that it was except through the Son of God. So this year, this year we've chosen to go through the life of David. The life of David. Who he was, who was this guy David? Now, I know for most of you who grew up in church, David is a very prominent figure. You probably dressed up in his armor. You probably had a sling and all the things and slung, you know, paper at your Sunday school teacher during um, um, David, and David and Goliath. So we're going to be talking about why the Lord instrumentally used David who he was, and to showcase that David was just a man like you and I. That though the Lord used him in very mighty ways, he was not Christ. There would be a greater David to come, and that would be found in Jesus. So as we're going through the Psalms, we're not going to elevate a man like David to a position that he's not supposed to be elevated in. We're going to show you the reality of David. We're going to show you the reflections of his soul in the Psalms through very specific situations that he was in and that how Christ was the greater David in those particular situations. You're going to see today uh, that, as we talked about the, the title, a house and a fortress, that in Psalm 59 we're going to hear that the Lord is the fortress and our strength. Lord's fortress in our strength. The lyrical reflections of the human soul amidst the turmoils, trials, and triumphs that David would experience as God guided his life, guarded his life, and gave him life. So I'm going to invite you this morning to turn with me to Psalm 59. If you would stand for the reading of the word of the Lord this morning, we're going to read the entirety of the psalm together. Not out loud. We don't have to do that i got to remember to be more articulate about such things. Starting in verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Selah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths and swords within their lips for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. 
Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them trotter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them until they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. This is a pretty heavy psalm to start the summer with. You're like, thanks, Freddie. We could have started a lighter one. We're jumping right in. We're jumping right into one of the biggest moments of David's life. And we're going to start with David and Goliath. We're going to start with David and Goliath here in a moment. But we're going to showcase how this buildup of events that happened in David and Goliath led to where David would write this psalm. Now, David and Goliath isn't the main reason that this psalm was written. He wasn't talking about Goliath here. We'll see in just a moment. He was talking about Saul and his servant. Now, this particular psalm, some would equate that this is more of an imprecatory psalm, which is a psalm of calling for judgment from God upon the wicked. And people are like, well, why would that psalm be in there? Why is that in the Bible? Just to showcase the eternal weight of what sin is like. How God feels about the very people, wicked people who seek to bring destruction to his people. The vileness of wickedness that come against the people of God in many measures. These are the psalms you go to whenever you are actually being persecuted, whenever your soul is downcast, when you're isolated and out uh, for the sake of being persecuted for the name of Christ, which we're going to see more and more as time goes on. These are going to be those psalms like, Lord, I don't know how much more I can take. Can you do something about this? But Psalm 59 reveals something so much better, so much more rich than simply the reflections of an angry man at a vengeful king. He displays the reality that God is our fortress and our strength. He uses those two words very specifically, and we're going to see why this morning. This song was written in response to a very real and very dangerous situation for David. David had only been serving in faithfulness to God and the plan God had for David's life when betrayal and murderous outrage filled the heart of those whose heart used to be soothed by David's songs. And now David was writing a song to soothe his own heart. David was employed by Saul to play the harp and lyre to soothe the soul of Saul. So that way Saul's heart would be soothed in the midst of turmoil. Now we're seeing a song by David because his heart is needing soothing from the one he used to soothe. This is such a powerful and and, and real situation that he was on the run. But first, let's get to some background. Let's get into some background of what led up to this moment. 
What led up to this moment? So first, Israel desired a king. God had just delivered Israel out of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness, delivered them from the wilderness into the promised land. God had begun setting up all the tribes of Israel around, and he was going to have the tabernacle in the middle, and God would dwell with his people, and they would dwell in safety and harmony and be blessed forever. That was the goal. But humanity being humanity, we've seen that fruit and be like, I want that. And I want that. Oh, you have gods too? I'll take some of that if that means gold for me. They started making wheels and deals with the Philippines. Or Philippines. Philistines. Philistines. They're wheeling and dealing with nations. And this got them in a lot of trouble. Now the people got sick of the judges. So during this time, uh, God's people were so wicked that he gave them judges to judge over their situation. They would deliver the people. The people would be like, hey... What's going on, Philistines? Let's make some wheels and deals. Oh, no, you're trying to enslave us. God, help us. And then the judges would come over and whip up on them and be like, you cut that out. And go back over here and like, everything is good. And then the Israelites make it back over to the Philistines and the other nations are like, hey, you guys got any gold and chariots and stuff? And they get themselves back and forth in this trouble with them. And the judges had to constantly rescue them. At this point, Israel is so worn out by judges that they're like, you know what we need? We need a king. Yeah, one guy to rule them all. We need a king. And listen listen to the words of God here. Because the people had rejected God as their king. And they're like, no, no, no. We want to do like all the rest of the nations do. We want a king like that. Listen to the words of God here. 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Whoa, church! (coughs) They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. What did God say of this people? That you were going to come out of the nations? That you are drawn out? You were going to be my people? A different nation? A holy nation? They're like, no, no. We want to be like everybody else. Continuing on. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The Lord of glory, the creator of all things, the infinite, abounding in steadfast love, full of grace and mercy, has been rejected as king. They wanted somebody else. So what does the Lord do? All right, you want to be like the nations? You got it. You guys can have a king. And he gave him a warning right after that. Israel, this is what's going to happen if you want a king. You're going to take percentage of your stuff. They're going to enslave you whenever they want to do things. They're going to cause your young men to go to war. And there's all these warnings about if you want a king, this is some stuff that's going to go on because of your desire. You're going to have to fight pretty much for yourselves. Things started well. They started out well with King Saul until Saul 
full of himself, stepped outside of the call to which he had received. You see, Saul was a king, and it was in the Torah that a king could not be a priest too. Couldn't be a priest also. So guess what Saul did? Full of his own self, full of his own hubris, was like, you know what? I'm getting tired of waiting for this priest. I'm going to make the sacrifice for myself, and he does it. And the Lord rebukes him for it. He actually gives him a warning, a little bit of grace and mercy there. Gives him a bit of a warning. King Saul sought to fill the role of a priest and directly disobeys the Lord's commands and used worship as a means of selfish gain. This is 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. He goes and he conquers a particular city. The Lord said, you shall devote everything in that city to destruction. So what does Saul do? Not that. He goes and takes for himself the best women, the best cattle, the best goats, and thought, hey, this is our spoil for war. This is what we deserve. And here comes Samuel. What are you doing? Weren't you told to devote all this to destruction? He goes, yeah, but I thought we'd use it to worship. You know, you know, put the stuff on the altar. God will be happy, and everyone's happy. Samuel rebuked him. He's like, you bring that king right here, right now. And he did. He tore a piece of the clothing off and then killed the king that Saul was supposed to kill. He took that piece of cloth and waved it in front of Saul and said, the same way this cloth was torn from this king, so you, the kingdom will be ripped from you because of this thing. Apostatized. Saul had done a few things the Lord did not permit kings to do, and he lost the kingdom because of it. This is where we see it, Roman, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 15, verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? The garden, maybe? I believe somebody else, and I took and ate. Well, foolish words. Verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you for being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. We're going to find out who that was. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret or lie. He is not a man that he will have regret or lie. Saul knew that this was coming. He knew what was coming and why it was coming. His sin was what caused his removal from kingship, not David. David doesn't enter the picture until the Lord declares that he has rejected Saul as king. So Saul had fear of losing his house. He had fear of losing his house because of his own sin, which brings us to number one. A house divided. A house divided. Now, check out this map here. Where we're going to start in this journey, because it took a long time to reach the point where Saul was ready to kill David where this psalm comes from. This is a map of where the battle of David and Goliath happened. This is known as Soka. Go ahead and go to the next one. 
And here's a picture of the valley itself. So obviously the Philistines and the Israelites were on two separate sides of this valley. And guess who was camped here? Israel was. Philistines, Gath was the place where Goliath was from, came to meet them on the Philistine side. They're like, what are you doing here? We're going to stomp you. Because Israel is so bold enough to go into the Philistines area. This is where it begins, the story of David and Goliath. Now, I know most of you probably know the story, but we're going to deep dive into very specific details that happened within the confines of that story. Things that were particularly said and done. First, we're going to take a look at 1 Samuel 17, verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, this is Goliath speaking, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Notice the name. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So what's something that's absolutely interesting about Goliath, his descriptive words about what he looked like, he's around 11 feet tall. Big fella, clearly outsizing anybody around. But his coat of armor was described as scales. The same word that was used to describe the serpent in the garden. This was a much bigger enemy than just simply a warrior. This was a picture of the enemy entering the camp and saying, I'm going to enslave all of you if you can't defeat me. We face a very similar Goliath in our day. I will enslave you all unless you defeat me. Let's continue on. Saul used to have confidence against the Philistines. As a matter of fact, before this situation, before he lost the kingdom, he would go out and conquer in battles, left and right. People rejoiced. There was much cheering. Saul was doing well. He had confidence against the Philistines and would conquer as the Lord would give it to the Saul's hand. But what was told to him before this incident? That he would lose his kingdom. Saul was afraid of losing his house. And I don't mean a physical house. I'm talking about everything. A serpent has entered the house. Entered the kingdom and willing to make a deal. A serpent who stated that if he is crushed, the Philistines would serve the Israelites. Otherwise, the Israelites would serve the Philistines. Does this language sound very familiar? Serpent in the garden. Serpent in the kingdom. If he's not crushed, then you're all enslaved. David was not afraid. So what did, what did Saul do? What did Saul do in the midst of this situation? Well, David was not afraid, and he came from a different place. He came from a different place, and I love this. He came from the wilderness back and forth during the battle between Bethlehem and where the battle was being done. Do you know what the word Bethlehem means? House of God. Just back and forth. 
Bethel, house of Hashem, God. Bethlehem. Back and forth. House of God, battle. House of God, battle. Beautiful picture. 1 Samuel 17, verses 24 through 26. Let's see the demeanor of David in this, in this moment. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Have you seen this guy? He's huge. Huge. He's the, great, he's the biggest guy around. He's, you'll never find a better. I'm just kidding. Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Great riches, give away his daughter. What's he doing? And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy what? The armies of the living God. Goliath saw the military and said, you are all servants of Saul. David comes out and says, no, he is defying what? The armies of the living God. Saul's house was being threatened. David said, who is this guy? This is God's army. This is God's kingdom. Who is this guy? Continuing on. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he had spoke to the men. Eliab's anger was kindled against David. So his brothers got angry with David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? His brothers got upset because he came down. And that, the fact that he was able to stand forward and said, do you realize the reality of what you're saying? And his oldest brother rejected him right from the get-go. Who are you, David? Where's your sheep, bro? You've come down here because you were wicked in your heart. You just wanted to see the action. David's like, what have I done? I simply said something. Have you guys been there? Post something on Facebook. You should dress modestly. You should be in church this morning. That's crazy. Get off Facebook. It's a detriment to the soul. King Saul was willing to give up the house for the sake of deliverance and maintain his position. He was willing to give up the riches of the kingdom were not his. Those riches that came into the kingdom were given during battle that the Lord delivered over to the hands of these kings for provision for the kingdom. They were not Saul's to give away, and yet he was going to give them away. On top of that, he was willing to give his own daughter, a daughter away. Now, culturally, this would happen, arranged marriages and all that. But this usually happened in a, in a sequence where everybody would win in the situation. We'll see later uh, the bride price for Michal was very high for David. So he didn't actually give away Michal. He lied and manipulated David. Saul, or David's own brothers, turned against him. 1 Samuel 28 and 29. 1 Samuel 17, 28 and 29. He turned against him. Sound familiar, doesn't it? 
son from Bethlehem, sent to provide for his older brothers Israel, only to be rejected and accused of wickedness. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? Coming from the house of God to help and provide provisions to the older brothers, only to be accused of wickedness. But David's response is what Saul had long forgotten. Listen to how David responds to this situation, starting in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Okay, the smallest kid, a shepherd boy, is stronger in heart than the king of Israel at this moment. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Here it is. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That's a bold statement. Just imagine a Kodiak bear and grabbing it by the beard and just stalking it. That's what David did. But listen why he was able to do these things. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul looked at David and said, You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. David said, It's not because it's about me. The Lord delivered me from those things. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you then. Now, at first you'd be like, all right, Saul's cheering on David. No, he's being sarcastic. He's like, okay, David, you go ahead. Go out there and fight this 11-foot fella, and may the Lord be with you. He's being sarcastic. Where was the focus of the strength of David compared to Saul? Who was the deliverer of either one situation? Saul's position says we need a soldier to go out there and defeat the Philistine. And we don't have any because they're all scared. David comes out and says, who is this guy anyway compared to the armies of the Lord? The Lord's the one who delivered me from all these things I shouldn't have been able to kill. And the Philistine is not any different. So I'm going to go with the Lord. Who needed, to, who needed the protection? Who needed it? Here's the point. Beware of weak moments and weak men who are willing to give up the house. Willing to give up the house. What do I mean by the house? It's this. The house of the house of the soul. Those moments of temptation whenever things come your way. And you're willing to give up just a little bit of your soul for temporary satisfaction. Well, I can't conquer this. This is an addiction. I need medicine, medical intervention. I need a warrior. This glass is too big. Are you sure about that? Willing to give up the house. 
willing to give the house, give, give up the house of the family to cast aside kids and spouse for a little bit of satisfaction. Cast it all aside just for a little bit of satisfaction. I got my needs, bro. I got these things I got to go through. She's this and she's that. So I need to go find whatever. I need to do this. I need to do this in my strength. Saul was willing to give up the house. Saul was willing to give up anything because he saw everything he was experiencing and said, I can't fight this and neither can any of you. David did not. Smallest of the brothers, a mere shepherd boy, said, you know what, this is no problem. Because the Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear, how many lions and bears do you have in your life right now? How many bears do you need taken down? Have you fought them with the strength of the Lord, or have you tried to do it? I'll just develop this program, Freddie. I meditate this way. I read this mantra every day. Are you still struggling? Yeah. Well, the bear's still there, isn't it? What bears or lions in your house? And this last point, we're seeing a lot of, especially recently. Willing to give up the house of the church because of social pressures. We'll make a deal with the state. We'll say those things. We'll abide so we can keep our tax status. This movement's just too big for us. They have guns and stuff. So we'll, we'll submit. Just today, a convention here in town chose to abolish one of the foundations or seek to vote to abolish one of the foundational beliefs of Baptists everywhere make it subjective current context of the time to make us more inclusive be aware of weak moments and weak men willing to give up the house what we need is strong men not because of stature ability intellect we need strong men who completely submissive to the Lord. Men who are weak in themselves that the strength of Christ is what propels them forward. Do you want to be able to stand before social pressure? Be willing to stand for the name of Christ and see what happens. You may break my body, but you can't take my soul. I'm not going to give away the house. In your family, when some serpent tries to come inside your and cause destruction, don't look to yourself. Go to the Word and say, Lord, I need your help right now. This is a stinking bear. I need it destroyed. Be my deliverer. Psalm 59 is serious. How about your own soul? Where are you now? Where is your heart now? What serpents have made their way into your mind? 
that you give residence to? Is anxiety plaguing you because your mind keeps making war with your soul? That giant needs to be taken care of. And the more you seek to fight it on your own, the more tired you're going to be, more tired you're going to be, more tired you're going to be. You'll just keep battling and keep battling, and you'll wear out and give in. Which has happened so much now. Strong men and women, as Pastor, Blo- Pastor Blake spoke of last week, are those whose dependency is not found in their own strength, but in God. We are mere flesh and blood, but the Spirit of God is surpassing anything in this world. 2 Corinthians 12. Listen to Saul on Paul. A man, a mere man, recognizing his own problems, tells the church at Corinth this very thing. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of my surpassing greatness of the revelations, he's talking about the things he understands about God, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded to the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am made strong. Then I am strong. This verse is taken out of context Quite a bit. Do you read what he's saying he's okay with? Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The way to conquer the bears and the lions in your life, the Goliath that stands before you, is not your ability to sling a stone. God's going to use those things that you have experienced in your life, but their power and the might and the strength come from Christ himself. Those things in your life that seek to bring destruction to you, that serpent in there, is only defied, only destroyed, whenever you recognize your need and dependency upon Christ to remove it. Because if you try to battle it yourself, you're going to wear yourself out. So the strength comes from the Lord. So what happened to those inside Saul's house as his weakness was observed when trouble came? Number two, a house and a fortress. The difference between a house and a fortress. The house of Saul recognized that the Lord was defined, uh, has defined a new defender of his kingdom in David. Jonathan loved David. Jonathan was the son of Saul. They were brothers in arms, and Jonathan saw firsthand the spirit of God with David in battle with the Philistines. Listen to what Jonathan says regarding uh, David here in First Samuel 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. What does that mean? Now, first reading, you're like, okay, he's just giving him some cool stuff. No. 
This is a declaration of covenant to David saying, hey, I trust you and have faith in what the Lord's doing in your life to protect me. You have my armor, you have my shield, you have my sword, you have my boots, because my faith and my trust in whatever the Lord is doing through you. This covenant was not just some ritual of, hey, we're best friends. Yeah, BFFs forever. This was a commitment saying, I see what's going on. My father has given up the house. And God has found a new defender of the kingdom. So you have my sword, you have my armor, you have my boots and my belt. My faith and trust is in whatever the Lord's doing through your life. So you and I will be side by side fighting this together. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent him over the men of war, set him. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Not only did David place his trust in, I'm sorry, Jonathan placed his trust in David, but the whole of Israel saw it was good that David was at the helm. Not yet as appointed king, David, but he was working the duties of a king in a land where the current king was fearful of his own skin. We see this in verses 6 through 9, chapter 18, 6 through 9. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of, of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. <laughs> and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed a thousand. And what more can he have but the kingdom? He's throwing a fit, a tantrum. And Saul eyed David from that day on. He had lost the house. The kingdom was gone. The people didn't trust him. His own son no longer believed in whatever the Lord was doing through him. He has abandoned Saul, and so have the people, just as the Lord had said. Now it's with David. Not only his son, Jonathan, the one who was supposed to be next on the throne. Isn't that the craziest part? He was supposed to be next on the throne. And Jonathan gave it up himself because he saw where the Lord was working. Submit to the rule and power of God and David. But Michal, Saul's daughter, no longer sought the protection and provision of Paul, the king, but David, her husband. In direct defiance, Saul would not see David as the rightful anointed king chosen by God, but as an enemy to his own kingdom and his own throne. His own throne, and we see this in starting in verse 28. This is what Saul had to say. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Highly esteemed. David was being propagated and set up as the more rightful king in the situation. This is where we find ourselves this morning. All that background, all that weight, all these events that are going on between Saul and David is where we find ourselves this morning where we're going to see the psalm 
the situation where the psalm was written from. Direct opposition to God in a manner entering David's home through those who love, uh, who love David. A serpent has entered the garden to bring destruction and death to David. He's beginning to use those who love David as a means of destruction. And this is where we find it in 1 Samuel 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation. Do you see what he just said? Not Saul, not David. The Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Saul straight up just lies to his son. That's how little he cares about his own child compared to his own house. Just straight lies to him using the Lord's name in vain in that situation. Saul lies to his own son. He chooses to deceive his own son for the sake of his own bloodlust, a weak man who was willing to destroy anyone in his way. Relationships and loyalty were all but vanished in the tunnel vision of his own selfish desires. We see this continuing on, and this is the situation that we find ourselves this morning, verse 7 through 12. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. What was David trying to do for Saul in that moment? He was trying to soothe his weary soul. He was trying to help Saul in that moment. What does Saul do? He gets angry. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. That he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight... Tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. We have come to the point where Psalm 59 was written. The weightiness of David's soul at the hands of Saul, who sought to kill him for no other reason than Saul's own foolish selfishness. David needed more than a house to protect him, because his house was being flooded with enemies. He needed more than a house to protect him. 
Saul sought to make his way into the house to deceive McCall and Jonathan to destroy David. David needed a fortress, secured, guarded, and with the strength God alone could provide. So now let's read Psalm 59 again with the background in mind. Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot, plot evil. Selah. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. Ooh! Ooh! Like hound dogs looking for David. He's over here. No, he's over here. This is how eager they wanted to get him. Prowling like and howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Does David have a reason to say this? Does David have a multitude of reasons to say what he is saying? Bears, lions, Goliaths, who saw. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. He's saying, don't let them go by the wayside that people don't understand what happened. To say that I'm the one who killed them. He says, kill them not. Because he doesn't want people saying, oh, look what David did. Listen why. Make them totter by their power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be entrapped in their pride. That's Saul. For the cursing and the lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. What is the point that David is making here? Don't just simply get rid of my enemies. Do it in such a way that there's no question on who is the one who delivered. You've delivered me from bears. You've delivered me from lions. You've delivered all of Israel from Goliath. Now make sure you receive the glory and the deliverance of my own personal enemies. That others may look upon and say the Lord truly is the salvation. That Lord truly is the deliverer. Is that true of your life? People come up to you like, no way you're a Christian. I knew you. I once was this, but I'm not no longer. Why? Why? First Peter, be able to give a defense of the hope that you have within you. The Lord will use all that stuff you experienced in your life to his glory. So that way people can see the power and majesty of the gospel in your life. The power and the majesty of the gospel is not simply you being a good person. It's delivering you from lions and bears. It's delivering you from the one enemy that you have that will enslave you for all of eternity if he is not defeated. He will receive the glory for his deliverance. 
And he's going to use you as the strength to do it. Continuing on. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. You notice the dichotomy here? The bloodlust of these men are howling, barking like dogs. And what is David doing? He's singing. Joy of the steadfast love of God, the strength of God, unmoved. Not howling. Not running around like a rabid dog looking for something to eat. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. The term steadfast love is covenantal language. That's unbreakable. Steadfast means long-suffering, unbreakable, unmoving. Do you want to know what that steadfast love is expressed to you? How you received it, how you rejoiced in it, and how you hold it to the one who gave it to you. And that's what brings us to our last point. Number three, a fortress and strength is proclaimed. A fortress and a strength is proclaimed. I love the language of the Bible. The beauty of poetry and imagery that is sovereignly placed for the sake of our delight and soul. David was a shepherd and told Saul that the reason he was able to protect his sheep was through the deliverance and strength of the Lord. Listen to Jesus' words when he is speaking with his disciples. John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in any other way, that man is a thief and a robber. Did we see some serpents today climb in? A serpent made its way into the garden. A Goliath made its way into the kingdom. A selfish man made its way into the throne. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. What is Jesus discussing here? He is using kingdom language. The sheepfold is the kingdom of God, and Jesus is the good shepherd. But he is not that's not all Jesus is, though. Continuing on, listen to this. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. <laughs> All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Only thing that he will do in your life Lion, bear, Goliath, serpent, whatever you want to call it. That's the only thing it's going to give to you. 
theft, death, or destruction. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. Did somebody do that? In David and Goliath this morning, did somebody see a trouble? I was like, no, this ain't, this ain't going to happen. Was he a hired hand? Yes, he was. Saul was that hired hand. This language says, he is not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. That's us, you and I. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is the door and the shepherd. To enter into the kingdom of God, Jesus is the only way in, and the good shepherd who guides, guards, and secures. The deliverance of Jesus will come through the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. But when Jesus takes it up again, he will secure his sheep forever. He will secure his sheep forever. Continuing on, John 10. And here's the beauty. Starting in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in a suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Listen to this. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Saul was willing to give up the house. David gave up his house at some point. We're going to see that later on this summer. Jesus does not. He's not going to give you up. He's not going to hand you over. When things get tough, he has defeated the enemy. He is the fortress. He's the door. He's the sheepfold. He's the shepherd who will guard and protect you and lose none of you. That is a profound statement compared to all who came before him. All these kings were willing to give up the people for whatever. Gold, chariots, women, whatever. They were totally scattered, completely destroyed, enslaved. Jesus came and says, I'm the door. Not because I'm seeking to build myself up, but I gave my life for the sheep. I gave it for you that you may enter in. He's the fortress. Not only is he the fortress, he is the strength. I will lose none of them. No one will be able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Do you hear that? Not only is Jesus the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, the door into the kingdom of God, but he is also the king of kings who will secure all who are his and will not lose a single one of them. 
No serpent will be able to snatch him from his hand. No plot nor device of this world is able to separate uh, the love of Christ from those who he has set his affections upon. We have been given an eternal fortress to reside in because of the good shepherd. The good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep and took it up again to secure all who are his for all of eternity. That is an eternal fortress and an eternal strength that we can place our faith and trust in. So what are we putting on the armor of? Ephesians 6, it's the armor of God. It's his strength, his guarding. We dwell in him for all of eternity. Psalm 59 points us to the reality that God is the fortress and the strength. And the reason you and I could have that is because of one person, Christ Jesus, the good shepherd. He secured it for you, he guards you, and he will never let you go, ever. Christ is our fortress and our strength. So in conclusion, I want you to see another very famous psalm that was written with the very same language as Psalm 59. And the realization that David had. This comes from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That was also pinned by David. That reality is found in Christ Jesus alone. He is our good shepherd. He secures us for all of eternity. And he is the mighty warrior to whom we seek refuge and strength from. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are our fortress, that we have a place that we could go to find shelter a place we can find refuge in the midst of our own struggles and our own battles. Whenever we are being pursued by enemies that seek to cause destruction and theft in our life, that we have a refuge to go. That even though we are weak against such things, we have a strength in Christ. That we can run and be sheltered in that fortress. That we would have the strength given to us in the midst of our weakness to destroy our enemies. Enemies that seek to break the house, to break the soul, to separate us from you. But you have secured us for eternity. And no one will snatch you or snatch us from your hand. Lord, may this psalm ring of your deliverance and salvation. And may we realize the beauty found in Psalm 23. That whenever we dwell in you. We have a fortress and a strength in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.